Good morning, everybody. How are you doing out there? Good? Ten days for Christmas. Everybody ready? No? Okay. Um, if you're here for the first time, super duper welcome to you guys. Maybe you got a mailer, maybe you just kind of wandered by and saw the flags outside or whatever. That's awesome. I'm Dwayne Dare, the lead pastor here. And uh, if you're back as a recidivist, that's even better. So super duper to have you guys as well. Uh, we're in a series called Real People Christmas. I want to kind of pick up the story where we left off last week. Uh, even if you've not been in church a lot in your life, there's probably one story in the Bible you have at least uh, gleaned a little bit of information about, and that's the Christmas story, right? And we're walking through this, looking at, uh, at what took place through a slightly different lens than maybe we grew up with. Uh, the Christmas story turns out it's, it's not a doubt about Bible people, it's about real people. People in these stories don't have halos, they're just normal people like you and me. We think they're somehow super spiritual people and that they can deal with God and God chose them and all that kind of stuff because they were awesome and they were wonderful and they were, they were you know, deserved to be famous, right? Uh, but no, they're, they're just real people just like you and me. And if we, if we don't get that, then what we do is we put them into a different category that's totally different than us. They're just, they're not like us. They're not like me. And that makes it totally impossible for us to actually relate to them, right? And that'd be wrong because they're, they're real people just like you and I are real people. And, and here's the other thing we find out. If you look at Scripture long enough, God chooses real people that you and I probably wouldn't choose to do things that we never thought possible in ways that we never even considered possible. So we're kind of seeking to keep that idea in mind as we go through this entire series, right? So real people with real lives who get up one morning thinking today's going to probably be a lot like yesterday and tomorrow's going to probably be a lot like today until, boom, something happens and the world's completely turned upside down. And they're thinking as they watch this thing unfold that this can't possibly be happening, can't be happening to me. And they ask the questions that you and I tend to ask when life runs into us or we run into life, how can this be? How can this be happening? How am I gonna get through this? How am I gonna survive this? And the questions that usually follow those questions or something of a prayer, right? God, are you there? If you exist, do you care? Because in the moment, maybe when some things are falling apart, it doesn't look like maybe he's there or does care. And how we proceed in that moment has everything to do with this word we talked about in week one, faith. And what we mean by that is, when we talk about having faith, is, is this belief or confidence or assurance that God is actually who he says he is, and that he is going to be able to do everything that he says he's going to do, even when I don't see necessarily how it's possible. So picking up our story, Mary and Joseph are in the middle of what I described last week as the worst road trip ever, even right up there with uh, National Lampoon's vacation, right? We have Joseph somewhere mid-20s to probably mid-30s, engaged to a teenage girl who's just now given birth to a baby boy. They've laid him in a manger in... Uh, which is like a food trough, and wrapped him in some blankets. And the reason they're out in a cave or some sheep or cattle fold in the open air is because Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem, his ancestral home, right, to uh, register for a government census that they decided to do all of a sudden out of nowhere, right? 
And when they get there, Joseph's parents, or grandparents, because he had relatives in that town, right? When they get there, and they see Joseph with this teenage pregnant girl who's about to pop, and they basically said, you, you're not bringing that girl into our house. You're not having that baby here. You, you, you need to move, move along. And if you weren't here last week when I kind of parsed out that, that that's kind of probably what happened, uh, and, and if it blows up your nativity scene, I'm sorry, but you've you got to go back and listen to the podcast or the video. It'll be up online this week. Uh, I'm not going to cover all that today because we've got other stuff to cover. But for the record, what happens that night, nine months after Mary and Joseph looked at God and said, hey, you know, we don't know how this is going to happen. It didn't make any sense to us. But you're God. We like to follow God. We think you're a God. We think you're good. So we're going to trust you. We, we're going to trust you to take care of us. So we'll follow you wherever this road leads. And they end up 70 miles from home, Nazareth, right, in a cave or a cattle fold, sheep fold, out in the open with a newborn laying in a feed trough. Like I said last week, <clears throat> I don't know if it was a silent night, but I bet it was a lonely night because they're real people sitting in the middle of nowhere with a new baby. And they're, they're trying to piece it all together. They're trying to put things together. Okay, God, it's supposed to be good. We, we, we know that. Right? And if that's the case, how, how is it that we could end up here alone? And when you're thinking through all that and you can't make it fit very well, you, you end up with something that's like not a lot of hope. And if they're real people, they're probably wondering, what are we going to do now? Today the story picks up as we depart Mary and Joseph while they're thinking about what what their future holds and we're going to pick up with some shepherds out in a field miles away (coughs) and again I think you have an idea in your head about what these shepherds are like I just want you to hold that loosely because here we go Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 8 and in the same region not next door not right outside wherever they have laid the baby in the same region There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So they're in the same general region, somewhere around the the environs, around this little town of Bethlehem. And when you and I hear the word shepherd, something comes to mind for us, doesn't it? And I just want to tell you that's probably not right. We talked last week about how that around that manger scene with Mary and Joseph, there were, there were no angels there, there were no music, there's no music, no great rejoicing at that moment, right? They're just alone out in the field. But, but over here in this field where the shepherds are, things are going to be a little different. So let's start with the word shepherd. And I think we need to get out of our minds to think about, thinking about, you know, wise old men full of sage and wisdom, seated on a rock, sitting in the lotus position, just getting stuff from God and passing it on, right? It's not like that at all. I think we need to think less Gandalf and more Stranger Things. I think they looked a lot more like these boys. I've traveled quite a bit in the Middle East, North Africa. I've seen lots of shepherds. And most of them are little kids, six, seven years old, maybe up to 14, 15 years old. They carry a stick, like some of the guys we saw in the videos here. Maybe a knife, maybe a spear, a staff, something like that. Maybe a slingshot, right? And if you are a family with sheep or cattle... Being a shepherd for that family is the assignment that the youngest kid or kids in that family get. That job goes to the lowest ranking people in the family. 
Why do I say that? Well, the youngest in the family is often put upon, often thought of as less. They have to endure some humiliation, humiliation from their, their uh, big brothers and sisters, like maybe in this next video. video. Uh, to make the point here, do you, you remember when God was sick and tired of the first king of Israel, King Saul? And he decides he's going to depose King Saul, and he, he, announced, he anoints, or he tells uh, Samuel, the prophet, he wants you to, I want you to go to Jesse's house, and uh, we're going to anoint the next king of Israel. So Samuel travels there, fully anticipating he's going to be meeting the, the, next, the next king of Israel. So he meets all the sons of Jesse, he, he, he thought, right? He thought. And uh, he, the oldest guy walks in, he's a specimen, man, he's awesome. And Samuel's thinking, this, this has got to be the guy. This has got to be the person. This is the one that God has chosen. He's, he, he, is, he is everything you want a king to be. And God says, ah, that's, that's not him. You're, you're looking at stuff I'm not looking at. I'm, I'm looking at the inside. You tend to be looking at the outside. And so Samuel says, okay, that's not him. We'll go through all the other, all the other brothers in the family, one by one. And, and none of them are the guys that God has chosen. So Jesse's getting, I mean, uh, Samuel's getting exasperated, getting frustrated. And he looks around and he asks the goofy question, <laughs> right? Because he knew that these guys knew he was coming, right? He says, are you sure that these are all your kids? <laughs> what a dumb question. And Jesse looks around, does a head count. He goes, oh, well, there is one more, the youngest, Mr. Insignificant, a little squirt named David, he, he's doing what insignificant little people and families do. He's out shepherding the sheep. Of all my sons, he's clearly the one that didn't even deserve to be in the house here as we're doing this little shindig here. So I didn't even think it was worth getting him here. And Samuel orders him to bring David into the house. And if you know your Israeli history, the rest is, the rest is history. Anyway, if you're a boy in the family, the youngest, you're, the, you're, you're to be the shepherd. And, and, you're, and you're hoping, right, if you're, if you're that person, you're praying that your parents have more kids, right? At least one or two more boys, right? So that you can get out of doing that job. I'm not sure that this boy in the screen is a shepherd, but he, I mean, he could be because he's so happy there's another kid in the family. He don't have to be the guy that goes and lives with the sheep. Here's another thing. A lot of the shepherd boys that I met, a lot of shepherd boys in this area, a lot of boys in this, in this area in Israel, were orphans, very, very poor. Many of them are homeless, at least many that I've met. And when it says here that they were living out in the fields with the sheep, I think we need to take that for what it says. That's what they were doing. They were actually living with the sheep. That's their job, probably because they're orphans. So they had <clears throat> hired themselves out maybe to a master or a rancher, whatever you want to call them, and here was the deal. You, you are responsible for the sheep. You, you lose a sheep, bad things are going to happen to you. They're going to take it out on you. If you were orphans working for somebody else, you knew the sheep were yours, and you can't afford to lose one, or you're going to get into trouble. So my guess is, anyway, there were probably no shepherds in the field that day with beards. So don't think cute, cute Disney kids. I think you need to think hardened street kids. Think of maybe a 14-year-old with his brother who's seven or eight or nine, and they're just trying to get by because they got no mom, no dad. They're out there doing whatever they have to do to survive, just scraping by. They're real kids. They're real people with some real problems living out in a field. Now, something impossible is going to happen to these little boys that they did not see coming. 
And they had no category for what's about to happen to them because unbeknownst to them, God's angels are on the way. Angels. Now, not little fat guys with little arrows, the red hair, like you think about for Valentine's Day. In the Bible, as we've already mentioned, when angels show up, they just terrorize people. So whatever they are, they're big, they're scary, they're warriors, they got surrounded by light, they're just, they just blow people's minds out, and they're about to intersect with these kids. Luke 2, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, whatever that was, or whatever it was, and they were filled with great fear. Yeah, yeah, you think, I don't know where, in the middle of the, of the night. Imagine you're there, you're, you're in the third grade, maybe. You don't have parents. Or if you do, you're the most expendable person in the family. It's the middle of the night, you're watching out for sheep, watching out for critters, watching out for bad things to happen. You don't dare lose a single one. But this angel shows up and now it looks like your world's going to end. It's, it's over. This thing is so scary, you're about to die. If you could say something, you might scream. If you weren't petrified, you, you might run. And the angel says to them, Fear not, for behold, familiar verse, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Seems to me the angels never, never get it that when they show up, people are, people are just wanting to, wanting to crawl in a hole and die. They're, they're, they're that scary. They, and they always have to kind of, oh my gosh, they're scared uh, again. How, how does this happen, right? They never, they never quite learn that, that they're scaring people to death. Okay, so they're going, okay, I know you're scared to death. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get control of this situation so they don't run away. Right? My bad. And so they have fear, fear not. Now I want to look at what the angel said, because I've heard this all my life. But the angel says, "Fear not, for I behold, I bring you." Okay, who's he talking to? Yeah, little shepherd kids. He's bringing them good news. I mean, it's good news for all the people, but it's also for them. So maybe another way of wording this is, uh, don't be afraid, guys. I have an announcement that God has given me to give to you that ultimately is going to be for everybody, but I'm giving it to you specifically first. Now you want to file that away because we'll come back to it. Let's go on with what the angel saying. For unto you, in verse 11, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ is the Greek word that is a translation of the Hebrew word from the Old Testament that we translate Messiah. So in the Old Testament, God had promised in the book of Genesis, right, the first book of the Bible, to send someone, a Messiah, who's going to rescue people from the consequences of the sin thing that happened there in chapter 3. It wasn't just a pinkie pie promise, God. It was, uh, it was God who made it, so breaking it was not going to happen, right? So sin is a problem for mankind. Because in God's economy, sin of any kind separates people from a relationship with God. And that's going to feel like death. In other words, God, who's good, is now keeping a promise that he made all the way back in chapter 3 in the first book of the Bible when man first sinned. And you, you boys, you, you shepherds, wh- whom no one else would have chosen to have gotten such a message from God, God's chosen you to hear it first. And here's what you need to look for to recognize this Christ, this Messiah, this Savior, this God in person. He says this in verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, as if it wasn't scary enough, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's well pleased. We'll step back into I want to kind of do a vernacular translation of that. Here's what, here's what they're saying in that passage. Little guys, you, you don't have to be afraid. Here's why. This is the kind of God that you have. He, he is higher and more majestic than anything you could ever have imagined. He has promised and now he has sent his Christ, his Messiah, to make peace between mankind and God possible. And this peace is going to bring life because it's going to connect you to God. And those that God is pleased to offer this life to will be those who trust in this Messiah. And if you reject this Messiah, you're not going to experience that peace or that life. But if you place your trust in him, you will. Now, when the angel told them what to look for, there's a presumption, isn't it? There's a presumption in that statement, right? Yeah, there's an expectation that they're going to go looking. I mean, no reason to describe for them the sign that they're going to see unless there's an expectation that the angels are expecting them to go and check it out, right? And these shepherds are not totally daft. So after the angels disappear, here's what happens. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. My guess is they probably babbled like third graders, right? And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Because who can believe a bunch of snot-nosed shepherds? Anyway. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, before we move on too quickly... I was puzzling over one of the words. I thought an interesting word choice in that little passage. And the interesting word choice was pondered. I mean, that word in that text means the same thing it means in our world today. Right? So think about what you do when you ponder something. When you're pondering something, you're thinking about it carefully in an attempt to make a decision or reach a conclusion. So Mary has just heard from these shepherds that this baby of hers is the savior of the world, is the Messiah, is in fact God. And despite what the angel told her nine months earlier, she's still pondering. In other words, she's not completely sure she grasps the depth of what's going on here. Why? Because she's a real person. And real people ponder things that are hard to grasp. I'm going to, leave, I'm going to leave that for you sitting there to ponder. But, you know, it might help when you're reading your Bibles to find out later, about 30 years later, that Mary and Jesus' brothers are totally convinced that Jesus is off his ever-loving rocker when he begins his ministry. Right? So there were some things that they didn't quite get. So oh, back to the shepherds. First, some questions, then some applications. <clears throat> I know we said that God chooses people we wouldn't choose to do amazing things, but why would God choose shepherds? 
especially boys, by them. I mean, if, if I were God and my son had just been born after thousands of years of waiting and prophecies and promises, I'm not sure that my first PowerPoint presentation would have been, you know, to a bunch of shepherds or orphans in a field. I might have gone to the moral equivalent of Times Square, might have sought out the news outlets, right? Why would God choose the lowest, the most marginalized, least influential group of lost boys to be the first to hear this announcement that his son, Jesus, was born? Here's the only answer I can come up with. Because he's good and he keeps his promises. Because that's what God was doing in that field that night with these shepherd boys, being good and keeping a promise. Well, what promise, you ask? Well, about 600 years before that particular night, the nation of Israel was a total mess. It was doing everything wrong, and there was a prophet named Ezekiel that God sent to the nation of Israel with some uh, strong words, tough love, starting with some stuff for the religious leaders. Why? Because they were supposed to be, these religious leaders were supposed to be like, oh, shepherds. They're supposed to be shepherds. Ezekiel 34, you can read it for yourself when you get home, right? At halftime, maybe the game, right? God says that my people are my sheep. And the shepherds, the leaders, are supposed to provide for them, to take care of them, to protect them, right? And if the people wandered off from the truth, right, moved away from God, the leaders were supposed to go find them and bring them back. But by the time Ezekiel and God were having this conversation, religion and those religious leaders had turned on the sheep. And God's indictment of those leaders was that they were getting fat, devouring the sheep. Right? So God had entrusted them, and they weren't protecting them. They were hurting them. You beat up on them, God says. You chase them away. And when they wander far from home, far from me, you don't care. You don't go looking for them. You think they deserve what they're getting. So Ezekiel, tell them that there's a day coming, I promise. And this is what God promised. Interesting. Ezekiel 34. It says there's coming a day when I myself, God, will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong, those religious leaders who screwed up, I will destroy. Now that was 600 years ago. Skip ahead about 631 years. Jesus is walking down a road one day. He looks up and sees a little guy named Zacchaeus in a tree because he was too short to see him standing in the crowd. Everybody hates Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. He's working for the Romans, collecting taxes, and basically extorting his own people for his own gain. He broke every religious law, every moral law, every social law. His family turned on him. He couldn't even go to church anymore, couldn't go to temple. And Jesus looks up at him and says, hey, would you like to be my buddy? You want to be my friend? Hey, want to have lunch? Want to have, want to have food together? And he ends up going to Zacchaeus' house. And the religious leaders who have been following Jesus around, keeping an eye on what he's up to, they see him go into Zacchaeus' house. So they send a message into the house. They're not going to dare go into that sinner's house. So they send a message. And they say, ask Jesus why he's hanging out with sinners like this guy. And Jesus 
didn't bother to interrupt the lunch, he just sends a message back. People like Zacchaeus, that's why I came, is the answer. And then Jesus quotes part of the verse out of Ezekiel 34. He uses his, what he used to call himself. Jesus called himself the Son of Man a lot. He says, for the Son of Man, me, I came to seek and save the lost. And the rest of that verse, all the religious people knew what it went like. He came to seek and save the lost that he thinks we lost. Jesus said, I came to seek and save all that you lost, chased away, all that you abandoned, all that you didn't go looking for. And then Jesus says this in John chapter 10. He says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. I know my sheep. And my own know me. So again, why would God choose shepherds? to reveal the arrival of the Messiah. I think it's this. Because of all the people on the planet who knew that lost sheep and little lost boys need a good shepherd, it was those kids in that field that night. Yeah, you know the number one thing that Jesus compared us to, you and me? Sheep. So I've done some thinking. What do we have in common with sheep? Here it is. Both sheep and people just kind of wander off, don't they? They both kind of get lost. Not just lost from God, but lost in life, lost in marriage, lost in relationships, lost in parenting, lost in addiction, lost in finances. We didn't mean to get lost. We never thought we'd get lost. We, we didn't set out to get lost. But one day we kind of wake up and we find out that we're lost. And we start asking questions like this, how, how do how did I end up here? And how, how do I get back? How do I, how do I get unlost? And people who ponder eventually have that question. I did not think my life would turn out like it's turned out. How do I get back to where I need to be? And for most of us, here's our plan. <clears throat> we just make it up as we go. We run faster. We work harder. We entertain more. We get more stuff. And we just hope somehow we're going to stumble into the answer. I mean, maybe you can accidentally pull your life back together. Just that I haven't seen it happen very often for most people. So, sheep. Here are the top three reasons in the Bible that sheep die. Around Bethlehem, there's lots of canyons, lots of caves, lots of ravines, and sheep are just walking around grazing, and they just, you know, lose sight of where they are, and they just fall over the edge. I mean, that happens all the time, right? They just didn't know that there was a drop-off or a hole or a cliff there. Here's another. We know this from Paul, from Psalm 22. Paul, we are told this in Psalm 20, 23, I mean, he leads me beside still waters, famous psalm. It's like a sheep, right? If he's thirsty, he needs to be drinking from still water. Because if the water's running too fast and he gets into it, all that wool soaks up the water and he is swept away and drowns. And the third reason sheep die in the Bible is that there are wolves and predators out there looking to kill them. So they cross a line into danger, can't get back. They get in over their head, get swept away, or something attacks them. 
And all of a sudden, we're not really talking sheep anymore, are we? Isn't that how some of us got lost? We just made a mistake, kind of went over the edge. We got in over our heads and got sucked away, or someone just hurt us. Here's another thing about sheep. Best way for sheep to get back to a safe place, you might find this interesting, is not to scream at them, not to yell at them, not to give them advice about what they did wrong, not give them advice about what they should do or remind them about what they've done wrong. The best way is to go looking for them, and then when you find them, just walk up carefully, scratch the little ears, scratch the little neck, rub their tummies, and then you just start walking back to safety and let them follow you. How about we just walk back with them? So again, this all helps me understand why the symbolism of why God might have chosen to tell the shepherds first. Because it's all the stuff that Jesus does for us as our shepherd. Here's another question I have about these shepherds. What the heck changed? What the heck changed? I mean, these five verses that we just read begin with the shepherd boys seeing this angel and being filled with great terror. And a few verses later, it says they were headed back praising and glorifying God for everything they'd seen and heard. So what changed? I mean, because after all the angels and after they see baby Jesus, you know, you know where they're going? Yeah, right back to the field. Right back to their old life. Back to the dumb sheep. Back to a master that would beat them if they lost the sheep. Back to hunger. Back to living out in the open with the sheep. So how does a baby lying in a manger change anything? I mean, how can a baby help anybody back then or, or today? Ella is cute back there, right? She's awesome. If you start choking on a chicken bone, she's not going to do much for you. That's all I'm saying. What can a baby do for me? Can this baby find these shepherds new parents? Can the baby make sure that the master doesn't beat them? Can the baby guarantee that they're going to have food every day? No, he can't. He's a baby. Babies don't do much. So what did they have after hearing this message and seeing the baby Jesus that they didn't have before, I can only think of one thing. Hope. One thing, the only thing that changed. I, I heard about something. We, we heard about something. We saw something. And now all of a sudden they've got hope. I, I have hope that God is actually good and that he does keep his promises. Hope that God hasn't maybe forgotten about me. Because if I'm a kid in a field with no parents, it sure feels like nobody cares. Maybe I've got hope now that God's the kind of person that actually values people that nobody else values. Is it possible that God could do the impossible and actually care about and love little shepherd boys who've got nothing to offer God? None of those little boys have halos. They're not super spiritual kids. All they had was a need for somebody to love them and care about them. You know, I think maybe religion through history has served some useful purposes on earth, but I know this. Bad religion has hurt a lot of people, too. Back in Ezekiel's day, in our day, too. Religion has hurt and beaten and chased people away, a lot of people that God loves. And what God's saying is he wants them back. And I'll bet that if you know someone who has a problem with Christianity or the church, their problem is probably not with Jesus, probably not with what Jesus taught as much as it has been with 
religious people. Yeah, if you're in that camp, I'll join you in that. Me too. But here's a thought. What if you, being here today, is kind of proof that God has come looking for you? Jesus said he came to seek and save you, right? Not looking for you so that he could punish you, yell at you, scream at you. Not looking for you so he can remind you of all the stuff you've done wrong, lay out all of your mistakes. Not so he could add more guilt and shame than what you already have. How about this? How about if God is not done with you and wants to choose you to be in his family, to, to give you something you never thought possible in a way that you never imagined, right? See, see what, what the story says is there might be people in your life that are done with you, but God is not on that list. And what if that's true? I mean, what if you just pretended it was true? If it is, what would that give you? Maybe hope? Maybe God brought you here today to say, hey, you know, don't give up. I'm still here. I'm still seeking you. You, you might think, given where you've been, what you've done, what you've got going on, that you might think that that's impossible. But listen, this is God's specialty. Right? Second application maybe for our Christians. Back in Jesus' day, and I think in our world too, there's a kind of a difference between the religious people that, that God sort of blasted and warned that there would be a day coming when he would step in to rectify what they had done wrong. There's a difference between them and Christians who actually follow Christ, the Good Shepherd. See, religious people can pray prayers. They can make big claims about what God promises and what God can do is able to do. And then there's a period, right? They pray about it. They talk about it. But they don't do anything. But it seems like followers of Jesus pray about the same big prayers, same big claims about what God is capable of doing. Then they say amen, they get up, and then they follow Jesus. They say amen, and then they get up and go do something. They follow their Savior. That's the big difference. Talk about it, pray about it, or talk and pray about it, and then get up and follow, do something. Followers of Christ get it. They may be answers that God's going to use to answer someone else's prayers for something impossible to happen that they could never imagine could happen in a way they've never considered as possible. So if you call yourself a Christ follower today, how about this? How about you understand? You might be God's answer to someone, someone's prayer for something to happen that would be impossible in their perspective to happen and in doing it in a way that you would never imagined possible or they never imagined possible. You know, you get it, might, that you might be the answer to someone's prayer. I mean, you, not, not the person next to you, not him, not her, you. And if that's true, you've got 10 days of Christmas. That time of year when people are feeling more lonely, more depressed, more overwhelmed than practically any other time of the year. So let me throw out a couple of ways you might actually be, as followers of Christ, an answer to someone's prayer. How about this? Let somebody know that they're not alone. How about you pray that God would speak to you about someone who may be lonely or alone and commit that you'll do whatever God tells you to do. So pay attention. And then help someone who needs help. 
one way we're going to do that is the thing that Emily mentioned. Uh, I'm going to let Jen Gamboa back there talk about something we've been doing, some strategic planning. Took a survey a while back, uh, and Nova HTI sort of showed up on that list. Why don't you share with people, Jen, you can from where you are, what's going on with that. Jen, you sure?
probably think that uh, this is not really an issue in Northern Virginia. Uh, you'd be so wrong. Um, <clears throat> one of the places you think about where kids hang out, where they're, where, they're, where they're recruited, Tyson's Corner Mall, Dulles Town Center, Preston Town Center, any place where teenagers tend to go and mull about. If, uh, I've actually been to Dulles Town Center, and I've learned to spot guys that are on the prowl, predators on the prowl looking to entrap young girls. Um, so uh, I've dealt with a bunch of the, tra the traffic victims who've, actually some of them have come to our church. They've never heard the gospel, they get saved, and then they get carted off to California to be in witness protection, to be able to keep them safe from the trafficking network so that they can testify. So I've got four or five gals that I know that we have worked with uh, as a family uh, that are now have testified and are being set up in new, new situations, and it's just an awesome thing. This organization does fantastic work. Um, so one of the things we discovered is that we, <clears throat> we don't have any debt as a church. We don't have any, we're not paying the bank a mortgage. Um, and so most of our uh, needs, administrative and otherwise, are basically being covered by, by the funds we receive from the sale of our property over McLean. So what we've done, kind of maybe foolishly, maybe not, I think not, I, th I think it is foolish that we've done, done it better. We just sort of said, hey, everything you give is gonna be given to ministry. What we haven't done is effectively is lay out exactly what those ministry needs are. This is kind of the first one. So expect, a, I won't say a barrage, but I mean, we want to help you understand what it is that we're trying to do as a church to, to love on our community, to change our community. And this is just the first, if you will, effort we're making. So this computer is, uh, is the first thing that we're gonna shoot at. So, um, and again, um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're inclined to do that, that's fine. We're gonna put this out for the next two weeks. By the end of the year, that's the 31st, that's our, that's our deadline. Uh, and uh, the, the HDI folks are just over the moon that we would take this on. Uh, so anyway, throw that out there. Again, it's, for, it's basically for Christians. If you're, if you're inclined to do something to kind of pray, talk about how God, God, good God is, and then, and then let God use you, that would be, that'd be fantastic. Uh, let me pray us out of here, and then we'll get into um, some fellowship at the, time, at the end, and then um, we'll have a final message in this series next week. And uh, feel free to invite a friend, because it's all, all going to be all about hope. Lord, thank you. For